Welcome back to eConversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's podcast is the webinar replay from the May 23rd webinar on what's happening with immigration, diving into recent flows, pathways, and skills. The session is moderated by Aaron Tarazes, NABE Labor Economic Roundtable Co-Chair and Chief Economist at Glassdoor. Aaron, take it away. Thank you for that uh, introduction, Caitlin, and particularly thank you for all of you who are attending and our wonderful panelists. Um, you know, we've got uh, a lot of data, a lot of material to present, but just to set things up, as I'm sure many of you kind of saw and read in the invitation for today, um, it is a weird moment for the labor market. You know, by all signs, the, the economy is cooling, but the labor market has remained stubbornly tight, um, at least, you know, with, through the most recent data. Uh, many firms continue to report labor shortages. The unemployment rate is still at a, a historic low. Um, historically, immigration has played uh, a big part in helping addressing labor supply in the United States. Um, and, you know, they think there are continuous debates over to what degree those historic patterns continue and to what degree it's changing. So I'm really excited. I'm really grateful for four exceptional panelists who I look to for education um, about what is happening with immigration. The, the title for today is the state of flows, pathways and skills, and each of them is gonna address um, part, perhaps multiple parts of, of, of that equation. Um, as Kayla noted, please drop your questions into the chat. We will have about 15 minutes for those at the end. Um, also, you know, there are um, a number of technical immigration terms that if you're not familiar with, I encourage you to ask, um, you know, you know, most fields have kind of their, their technical language. So, so please ask those um, in the chat as well. Um, we are gonna start with about four 10 minute presentations, starting with um, Alicia Ward, uh, who is a statistician at the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Immigration Statistics, um, Homeland Security Statistics. We will then, proceed to, um, to Courtney Schubert, who is an economist at Macro Policy Perspectives, where she specializes in high-frequency data analysis. She was previously with the Kansas City Fed. Um, then we will go to Jana Batalova, who is a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute and one of the premier immigration policy think tanks um, in the DC area. Um, she manages the Migration Data Hub um, and has you know, been a longtime researcher and expert on the role of immigrants in the labor market. And then finally, to wrap things up, we will conclude with Harry Holzer, who is a professor of public policy at Georgetown University and also a fellow at Brookings. I will drop more details of the bio into the chat for you to, to check out their, their work and their research. But with that, um, I will hand it off to Alicia to, to kick things off. Great, thank you so much for the introductions, Aaron and Caitlin, we're excited to present today. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Alicia Ward. I'm a statistician from the Office of Homeland Security Statistics at DHS. I primarily work on benefits immigration data, such as non-immigrant admissions, and I'm also this year's non-immigrant flow report author as well. This report describes trends in non-immigrant visas, such as demographics and age and sex, country of citizenship, to class admission and ports of entry. I'll be sharing a few of these trends with you all today. Next slide, please. So before I begin, I wanted to give a bit of background on how we define non-immigrant and how OIS defines non-immigration. So non-immigrants are foreign nationals admitted temporarily to the United States, mostly, mostly within class admission. Unlike individuals granted lawful permanent residence or green card status, non-immigrants are authorized to enter the country for specific purposes in limited periods of time. The major purposes for which non-immigrant admissions are authorized include temporary visits for business or pleasure, academic or vocational study, temporary employment, and to act as a representative of a foreign government or international organization. So OIS typically analyzes non-immigrant admissions by using data collected from the I-94 form. The I-94 data does not describe all non-immigrant admissions because certain visitors are not required to fill out the I-94 form, including the majority of short-term visitors from Mexico and Canada. Of the data we do collect, I'll be presenting on the following four topics, temporary workers and families, students, temporary visitors for pleasure, and temporary visitors for business. Uh, and just to give a bit of a statistics from the flow report, which will 
further go into throughout this presentation for the fiscal year 2022, which I do want to highlight is the period between October 1st, 2021 to September 31st, 2022, nearly 45 million I-94 admissions were submitted. 87% were temporary visitors for business and pleasure, 7% were temporary workers and their families, and 2.8% were students and their families. So over the next few slides, I'll go into more detail on these trends before the pandemic, the downturn in 2020 and 2021, and its recovery. Next slide, please. So the first slide I'm going to get into is the total temporary workers and their families. During pre-pandemic, employment-based non-immigrant admissions declined by 37% and continued to decline by 28% during the pandemic. These admissions began to recover with a 72% increase. However, these admissions have failed to reach pre-pandemic levels with fiscal year 2022 representing a little more than 900,000 fewer admissions than fiscal year 2019. All three subcategories of employment-based non-immigrant admissions decreased during the pandemic. These are temporary workers and trainees, intracompany transfers, and treaty traders, investors, and their spouses and children. However, intracompany transfers showed the greatest pre-pandemic decline with 52% in non-immigrant admissions, while intracompany transfers also showed the greatest recovery with a 162% increase in non-immigrant admissions compared to temporary workers and trainees and treaty traders and investors with 61% and 68% recovery. These are proportionally similar to the trends in the total non-immigrant temporary workers and families that we saw on the previous slide. Thank you. Now diving even further into employment-based non-immigrant admissions, where I'll be looking at workers in specialty occupations, H-1B, um, non-agricultural workers, and returning H-2B workers, so H-2B, and agricultural workers, H-2A. These workers in specialty occupations, H-1B, saw similar trends in the total non-immigrant uh, admissions. Agricultural workers and continued, had continued growth, excuse me, starting in 2019 through 2022, an increase of 54%. This continuous increase could be a result of the temporary final rule published by DHS and USCIS that amended certain H-2A requirements to help U.S. agricultural employers avoid disruptions in lawful agricultural-related employment and protect the nation's food supply chain and lessen the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic health emergency. And in fact, this rule is effective up until August 19th of this year. Uh, for non-agricultural workers and returning H-2B workers, they saw an initial decline of 32% in the pre-pandemic years, but began to also continuously increase by 76% and non-immigrant admissions from fiscal year 2020 to 2022. This could be this, uh, inferred because H-2B um, visas, the DH secretary increased the total number of non-citizens who received H-2B non-immigrant visas. Uh, they were increased by about 35,000 for employers in the second half of fiscal year 2022. Next slide. So employment-based visas in all four subcategories saw similar trends proportionally to the total non-immigrant visas. The four categories that I'm referring to are workers with extraordinary ability or achievement, um, artists or entertainers, internationally recognized athletes or entertainers, or workers in international culture exchange programs. However, these four subcategories in the employment-based non-immigrant admissions saw the largest recovery than any other temporary worker family non-immigrant visa with a 140% increase for internationally recognized athletes or entertainers, a 239% increase for workers in extraordinary ability or achievement, a 489% increase for artists or entertainers, and a 705% increase for workers in international culture exchange programs. However, I will say, given the low numbers associated with these categories, the high percentage change is not surprising to us. Next slide. Next, let's take a look at tourism versus employment-based non-immigrant admissions. Tourism mirrors what we also see in the economic sphere during COVID-19 pandemic, with temporary workers and families and visitors for pleasure decreasing significantly in the pandemic and increasing in fiscal year 2022. The large increase in business for pleasure, or tourism, is likely due to relaxed travel restrictions in 2022 and the want for travel. We can infer that there was not a big influx of non-immigrant visas for business also because more employers were granting work from home or remote positions to their employees. Um, and so looking at temporary visits for 
pleasure, we see an increase in 286% in fiscal year 22, whereas temporary workers and their families increased 72% in fiscal year 2022. Next slide, please. Um, so looking at temporary visitors for business and temporary visitors for pleasure simultaneously next to each other, we see almost the same exact trend and almost the same trend as the total non-immigrant visas that I reported to you at the beginning of this presentation, where visitors for business saw a decrease of 54% pre-pandemic and visitors for pleasure saw a 56% uh, percent decrease. Visitors for business experienced a continuous decrease of 68% and visitors for pleasure saw a continuous decrease of 68% as well during the pandemic. And in the recovery phase, we saw visitors for business at 215%, while visitors for pleasure saw an increase of 286%. So we can infer that um, visitors for business and visitors for pleasure were experiencing the same economic downturn and recovery as we saw for total non-immigrants workers and their families. And now let's take a look into students. So student non-immigrant admissions fell 52% and exchange visitors fell 64% pre-pandemic and continued to decline during the pandemic. However, this decline was not as drastic as the total non-immigrant admissions, which fell 63% during the pandemic, compared to 13% for students and 23% for exchange visitors. Additionally, student visas have not yet recovered to pre-pandemic levels. A possible reason for student visas not returning to pre-pandemic levels could be the DHS rule that allows authorities to waive in-person interview, which is set to end December 31st of this year, of 2023. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, for students, um, excuse me, for employers, that many students are now taking classes online and don't necessarily have to come into the United States for a temporary stay. Next slide. Uh, that includes my presentation and for further and publicly available numbers that uh, aren't generalized uh, percentages, we do have publicly available data and the non-immigrant flow report that I mentioned should be available in the next couple months. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Alicia. Um, and I will pass it off to Courtney now. Great. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you, Alicia. It's great to be with you all this afternoon. So um, I wanted to briefly go over a little bit about uh, macro policy perspectives and so why I'm, I'm work working on immigration flows. So at macro policy perspectives, we do economic consulting and detailed forecasting on inflation, employment, and the Federal Reserve. And we're constantly seeking to understand how dynamics are changing and specifically um, how we can better analyze and forecast um, things moving forward. And we've realized that um, immigration flows have been one of the most dynamic pieces of the U.S. labor force over the last several years, both with the dramatic drop in, in, in visa issuances that we saw during the pandemic, as well as the dramatic rebound that we saw in 2022. And so we wanted to look at um, kind of high frequency monthly data that we get from the State Department and um, the Refugee Processing Center to kind of analyze where we've been and where we're going. So slide, please. We primarily had three main questions when we started looking into this. So specifically, how many um, immigrant workers are missing from the US labor force? And our analysis has shown that the US economy missed out on a little over a million immigrant workers during the pandemic defined as March, 2020 through December, 2021. Our second main question of course was, well, how many have we recovered since then? Um, data through 2022 shows that Last year, we recovered about 20% of the 1 million worker deficit. And um, of course, the third question is, well, where are flows headed? Um, and how long will it take to make up the rest of the deficit of missing immigrant workers? And so far, the data that we have through March 2023 shows that um, flows are even harder. Slide, please. Um, but first, let's define work eligible visa categories. So Alicia focused on non-immigrant temporary visas, and that makes up a large part of the universe that we're tracking. It makes up 77% actually. So we include um, temporary work visas like the H-1Bs and the H-2As that Alicia mentioned, um, but we don't include like the travel temporary visa for, um, for you know, travel and pleasure. 
Um, specifically, we're focusing on the category of visa issuances that would flow directly into the monthly jobs data. So we also include permanent immigrant visas. So those would be the green cards that are issued um, to people who are seeking to live here permanently. Now, for those categories, we know that permanent immigrant visas are also issued to children and also um, spousal visas. And so looking at historical data as well as recent methodology, we account for those shares in our time series. And then we also include um, data from the Refugee Processing Center on refugee flows and specifically the adult share of refugees who might be eligible to engage in the workforce. Slide, please. So what we've all been waiting for, of course, the data, what does it look like? So the left-hand side um, shows a chart that shows um, on a monthly basis over the last several years, we have data back through March, 2017. What do the flows look like for this work eligible category that we've defined? And we can see that in March, um, flows were up 36% compared to a year ago. The chart on the right-hand side shows um, the data that we have from 27 to 2019. If we were to look at the monthly non-seasonally adjusted average, and charted it over the course of the pandemic, as well as in recent years, um, how has the actual visa issuance compared to um, what we might've expected from that pre-pandemic average? And so if you look for 2020 and 2021, the difference between that orange line and that blue line, that's where we get that 1 million missing workers. And then you can see that, um, uh, that on uh, the section for 2022, the blue line actually outperforms the orange line considerably. And then of course the 2023 data is even hotter. So next slide, please. So specifically looking under the hood, what flows within the work eligible categories are changing and where are we seeing that most significantly? Um, and so the chart on the left-hand side shows J-1 visa issuances. And J-1 categories are one of the largest categories. They make up a third of all non-immigrant visas, roughly. And um, specifically, they're issued for work and work-study exchange programs. And they're also one of the most seasonal categories. Um, primarily, the most issuances of J-1 visas happen in April and May. Um, but you can see that the data that we have through March shows that um, we had a 23% year-over-year increase in flows for J-1s, and we actually had a 10% year-over-year increase for other non-immigrant visas. And again, you know, non-immigrant visas make up about three quarters of our sample for the categories that we track. And so um, keeping up with, uh, you know, how the flows have shifted in Q1 and how they're likely to shift in Q2 is really really important for us. So we'll be carefully waiting and watching for the April and May data. Next slide, please. So we also have data on H-1B visas, um, H-2A and H-2B visas as well. Um, and so H-1B visas are issued to skilled workers, people with the equivalent of a bachelor's degree or more. So if you were to think about economists in other countries that might be seeking to come to the US to do research, this is probably the category they would, uh, they would fall into, right? And we can see that compared to the pre-pandemic flows, H-1B visa issuances were up 38% in March. Um, you can see that they recovered significantly in 2022, but we really missed out on a lot of highly skilled workers during the pandemic period. Um, in contrast, we actually did see a lot of H-2A visas. Alicia mentioned how some of the, uh, the policies regarding agricultural workers changed during the pandemic to allow for more inflows. And so certain industries you know, fared a little bit better in terms of having more available workers, specifically from the foreign-born worker categories. And so um, I know the, uh, the chart on the right is pretty choppy and very seasonal, but I wanted to include all of it specifically because you can see that dark blue line for H-2As in 2020 did not drop nearly as much as some of the other categories that we're tracking. Um, so, and basically, um, so for H-2As we're seeing, you know, 
a 50% increase compared to pre-pandemic, which is the equivalent of about an extra 9,300 workers um, for ag workers per month. So in summary, um, again, thinking about the three main questions we had, you know, what is the gap? How much are we recovering and where are we going? Well, we've seen that, you know, visa issuances for workers are up considerably from their pre-pandemic pace and the Q1 average of 150,000 foreign born workers per month is considerably above the 50K per month that we were seeing in the depths of the pandemic. And then also the 110K per month that we saw um, in 2017 through 2019. So on a monthly basis, flows are reading considerably higher. And our analysis has shown that if the Q1 run rate continues, we could potentially recover um, up to 70% of the pandemic deficit of 1 million missing workers by the end of 2023. So currently we've recovered um, over 30%, around 33%, I think, of that 1 million missing workers, but we could recover quite a bit more this year um, if the current pace continues. And then finally, kind of, thinking about how we're, um, how immigrant visa flows have changed and how that's showing up in the jobs data. One of the primary ways that we're seeing it show up in the employment situation reports is through the labor force participation rate. So the universe that we're tracking this work eligible category, we're specifically honing in on people who are directly entering the labor force. And because of that, we um, estimate that people on work visas accounted for more than 75% of last year's recovery in total labor force participation. And we anticipate that they should continue to add upward pressure um, for participation in 2023 and um, overall, hopefully help the US labor force um, come into better balance between the increase in supply um, and the increase in demand that we've seen. So. Thank you so much, and I'll turn it back over to Aaron. Great, fascinating stuff, Courtney, and I'm excited to pass it to Jonna now. Um, thank you, Aaron and Caitlin, for the invitation. Uh, really pleased to be, to be here. So, um, Courtney gave us a picture of uh, the numbers and flows of people who uh, arrive on work visas, so they're work ready, eligible to enter the labor market. They, they have an employer, uh, so their status is more or less uh, settled. It's not necessarily permanent, but they, they, they have a legal uh, permit and, uh, to, to be here and, and to work. I will focus on what I call the other flow, you know, people who are in uh, other kinds of statuses, uh, whose status is temporary, uh, whose status is un uncertain, and whose statuses are uh, uh, subject to pending court uh, uh, legislations, uh, uh, lawsuits, and um, uh, decisions made by by uh, different by uh, by the White House. Um, just next slide, please. One quick word about uh, the institute I'm uh, with. It's the Migration Policy uh, Institute. Uh, we are nonpartisan. Um, think tank based in Washington, D.C., focusing on tracking policy and, and uh, uh, policy trends in immigration, data trends in immigration, um, focus also on uh, trends that are happening in the United States as well as other countries. Um, and uh, I, I manage, uh, in addition to my role as a, a researcher, I also manage uh, MPI's Migration Data Hub. So if you need any data on immigrants in the United States, uh, their characteristics, or in other countries, let's be friends. Uh, there is a, my email in the end of the presentation. All right, so let's take a look at the, um, the next slide, please. An overall picture of immigrants in the workforce. In, in 2021, uh, there were 28.6 million immigrants who represented about 17% of the U.S civil and labor force. Um, they are not equally distributed. Uh, some states, uh, they represent a higher proportion of the civilian workforce than in others. 
uh, traditional destinations like California, New York, New Jersey. Immigrants account for a larger share of immigrants. But that's also true in states like Nevada and, and uh, Hawaii and uh, Massachusetts and Maryland, where immigrants uh, represent a higher than the national share. Um, I also have to mention that the, the uh, uh, people on work visas uh, will be joining the, the already uh, the immigrants who are already working in the U.S. Uh, labor market. Of this population, about 6.8 million are immigrants who are worker, workers, but they are in the unauthorized status. Um, all immigrant workers, they work across the entire skill spectrum, representing uh, significant shares in construction, agriculture, uh, which is both kind of a middle skill and, and, and low skill, but also in the professional scientific and management uh, services. Uh, one important point to mention about uh, immigrants is that their, their educational attainment is rising. And we could talk about it why, but um, the most recent data show that 34% um, uh, uh, have at least a bachelor degree and uh, up from 20% in 1990. But if we look at the recently arrived uh, immigrants, uh, almost half of them have a bachelor or higher degree, which of course has implications on their um, on the skills and, and um, education that they can bring to the labor market. Uh, next slide, please. All right, so let's talk about um, these other 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 immigrant workers who may have or many have work authorization, but that authorization can be taken away. Uh, depending on 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 the legislative or uh, uh, legal winds that are blowing rather hard right now, so you might be familiar with the population called referred to as DACA, uh, which are the um, uh, the status given to the young unauthorized uh, immigrants who were brought in the United States as children. Uh, the latest statistics show that more than uh, uh, than half a million of, of these people are in the United States. In terms of their characteristics, they're young, they're U.S. educated. Uh, majority come from uh, Mexico and other Central American countries. Uh, then there is another group uh, called uh, those with temporary protected status. Uh, it's a special form of humanitarian relief. Uh, given to uh, to nationals of countries uh, uh, that could not return home uh, home from the United States because of ongoing conflict or a major uh, uh, natural disaster. Uh, similarly, we we have more than half a million uh, people um, from 16 countries, but the overwhelming majority of uh, TPS holders come from four. Uh, uh, countries, El Salvador, Venezuela, Haiti, and Honduras. Uh, in terms of education and age, it's a mixed group. Uh, Venezuelans are, uh, are more likely to be higher educated, um, uh, maybe also younger because it's the most recent uh, group uh, than the other large uh, TPS um, groups. Uh, both DACA and TPS holders are eligible for worker authorization, as well as on some benefits. It depends on the state. Uh, for instance, some uh, DACA recipients, um, depending on where they reside, uh, are eligible for in-state tuition. Um, a lot, a lot of people going to to uh, college pursuing uh, uh, post-secondary education. Um, importantly, these programs are temporary. There is no path to green cards or citizenship, and their future de de depends on pending uh, legislation, uh, depends on the decision um, of a person who is in the White House, as well as on, on uh, uh, those in Congress. Next, next slide, please. Uh, in terms of post-pandemic flows, um, you, if you read the news, you, you know uh, because, uh, that there are several groups of people who came uh, to the U.S. Uh, because of this uh, for, foreign uh, 
uh, affairs and other another um, decision that the Biden administration has made. Uh, one group is is the Ukrainians. Um, about 145,000 came through special program called United for Ukraine, and another 160,000 came on other other visas, uh, including the, the they are part of the flows that Courtney mentioned. Uh, about 76,000 Afghans were able uh, to come um, as part of these. Um, the four countries, the, the, one of the most recent uh, humanitarian parole programs uh, covers nationals of four countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Uh, the latest data suggests that uh, 100,000 of them arrived um, with an expectation that, uh, according to the uh, program's rules, um, uh, about 30,000 uh, uh, people can come per month from these four countries combined. But look at the uh, the number of uh, requests that DHS received to sponsor nationals of these uh, uh, four countries for parole. It's more than uh, it's it's about 1.5 million. So we're talking about potentially a large number of people coming in, in, in the pipeline if if that program survives the legal challenge. So the, these uh, uh, these groups are eligible for work authorization, maybe not right away, it takes, depending again on uh, how they arrive, it, it may take longer. Uh, they also depend, depending on state and nationality, they are eligible for some benefits, including um, uh, educational benefits that would allow them to uh, to build on the skills or gain the skills that they need for the labor market. Uh, just like the other two programs, they are temporary, no past to citizenship and future depends on decisions by court, president, and Congress. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Um, so those are the groups who came through this special humanitarian relief program. But there are other groups uh, that are uh, other immigrants who are coming uh, to the United States. So this chart shows um, what the, the Department of Homeland Security refers as encounters. So people who uh, encounters at the southwest border. So people who are uh, trying to come to the United States. Uh, at the uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, some of them are um, immediately uh, 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 deported, uh, but some are apprehended. And depending on multiple multiple factors at play, some of them might may be let in uh, uh, in the United States uh, on on either either on parole or. Uh, with the special notice that they need to appear and make their case, uh, the uh, the chart in uh, the portion of the chart in blue uh, covers uh, the the population that uh, most likely was able to uh, to enter uh, the United States. Again, their status is not um, permanent in any way. Uh, they they don't. Most of them do not even have uh, uh, work authorization because it takes uh, time for them to apply for the status that would grant them work authorization. But as we know from uh, history of uh, uh, a lot of immigrants, regardless of their status, find work in the U.S. Uh, uh, depending on their skills, uh, the labor market needs, uh, opportunities, immigrant networks. Uh, and, and many other factors. So altogether, we are talking about a significant. Uh, sorry, next slide. Uh, altogether, we are talking about a significant number of people, millions of current and new immigrant workers, who are either in liminal statuses, so the statuses that could be taken away at any moment, or unauthorized uh, uh, and don't have the, the uh, even even the as this kind of temporary in-between status. For most of uh, these groups, uh, their future is, is uncertain. Um, I'm going to uh, drop an article by my colleagues uh, that discuss various uh, uh, court um, 
challenges uh, that challenge every single one of those programs. Um, and and uh, uh, it also their future also depends on who is at the White House and on the composition of Congress. Uh, the, these immigrants have a very mixed educational skills and uh, age profile with significant implications for the local, local labor market. You might have read uh, recently an article that the arrival of Cuban uh, immigrants to Louisville in in one year increased the, the total population of the city by 1%. And what we know about immigrants from um, Cuba, that many of them uh, have healthcare training backgrounds. Many of them are medical, uh, medical doctors. So depending on um, the opportunities to convert their education and training uh, in, the, in the labor market, um, their prospects of economic integration, as well as contribution to that labor market, um, will will play out. Uh, we definitely need a reform that ties immigration admissions and labor market needs. Um, uh, here we'll talk more about what type of needs uh, um, the labor market experiences going forward. But just if if you uh, one quick stat. Uh, uh, more than 80% of employment-based green cards are uh, specialty occupation workers, H-1Bs, and intercompany transferees. Majority of these uh, visa holders come from one sector, is the IT computer-related, whereas, um, whereas the needs, uh, um, the, the skills and, and geographic shortages uh, exist across the, uh, the entire spectrum, uh, skill spectrum. Um, MPI has long worked on, on the idea of, uh, that the, the, the U.S. needs uh, to have a bridge visa that would allow a smoother transition between people who are uh, working, working on very temporary statuses but give them um, a pathway to permanent uh, residency. I will also drop drop in the chat the, the link to uh, that describes the, this idea. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jonna, for that really masterful overview. Um, uh, let's hand it over to Harry to kind of give us uh, an overview of what this all means for the labor market. Uh, okay, thank you, Aaron. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so the previous three speakers have all done a nice job of looking at the recent trends and the flows of both immigrant and, and non-immigrant visitors, uh, what happened during the pandemic, drop and recovery of the flows, some pre-pandemic trends, uh, fewer immigrants from Mexico, more from other parts of the world, driving up those levels of education among immigrants that Jana mentioned. And immigration analysts often talk about how immigration trends are driven both by push factors in the countries of origin and pull factors in the U.S., which could be labor market or policy changes, enforcement. So I'm going to focus on one pull factor, the labor market. First, look at what's happening in our labor market and then where immigrants might fit in. Next slide, please. So first of all, the short run, which again, I'm going to define more or less the last three, three plus years, the pandemic and recovery from the pandemic. So as we all know, you had a very rapid and steep recession in early 2020, but then a very rapid recovery from the recession after that. Uh, the very rapid recovery was fueled by strong fiscal and strong monetary stimulus. Some people say too strong. Um, but if you look at the labor market then in the years 2021-22, you had very rapid job growth that was exceeding growth in the U.S. labor force. Um, our labor force and employment levels were inhibited first by a large number of people withdrawing from the labor force, especially older workers. Secondly, by a lot of people quitting their jobs, often for burnout or other reasons. We called that the great resignation. And third, there was even some evidence of a great reluctance uh, of people to accept new jobs uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, worker burnout, uh, people wanting to spend more time at home. Uh, people still worried about health, et cetera. Um, all of those forces have diminished uh, since, say, 2021. 
labor force has partly bounced back, quits have declined, et cetera. They're not quite back to the pre-pandemic level. They have declined. But as a result of those factors, we see labor shortages in many sectors of the economy. And here I've listed the ones I think where the shortages are most obvious, according to job vacancy rates, professional services, healthcare and elder care, education, even leisure hospitality. So you see these shortages really at all different levels uh, of, of skill and of compensation. Of course, when you have shortages, it drives up prices and labor market labor shortages drive up wages and compensation. We saw a big jump up uh, in compensation rates that contributed a bit to the higher inflation we have now. The higher inflation was really driven mostly by other things, but wages added a little bit. So as a result, the Fed has been determined now to tamp down that high demand in the economy, to tamp down the high demand for labor. Uh, as Aaron said at the outset, so far the labor market has stayed very strong, very resilient, but we're starting to see some signs of slowdown. And we know some kind of a downturn is coming. Uh, we don't know how deep, uh, we don't know how long it will take to bring those inflationary forces down. Um, it will likely last a few years and then we'll get more back to trend. Uh, next slide. But for right now, uh, the labor shortage, we still have what look like labor shortage conditions. But now let's turn to what are the broader, the long-term trends in the labor market, which might be more relevant for, for our need for immigrants. Um, so I'm gonna focus on the first three bullet points. First, the baby boomer retirements are gonna continue. Uh, and that will contribute to overall job market tightness. Secondly, in the United States for, for years or decades, we have something of a short supply of workers with technical skills. Uh, and I'm gonna define technical skills broadly. They can be at the sub-BA level, all kinds of technicians in, in healthcare or manufacturing or other uh, fields, or they can be kind of at the BA and above levels uh, in engineering, scientists, et cetera. Um, but we have, we have produced relatively fewer of those workers in the United States. So whatever, whatever tightness we have in the labor market, they will be especially tight in those fields. And then third, on top of that, there's gonna be new labor market demand really from three new pieces of legislation that were passed in the last year, year and a half, and that were, are starting to be implemented. Number one, the Inflation Reduction Act, which will create a lot of jobs in the green energy sector. Number two, the infrastructure bill will create a lot of jobs in the kind of the kind of construction related to infrastructure and some manufacturing. And of course, the CHIPS Act, which will create high demand uh, in the in the very technical areas where, where chips and, and advances in chips are produced. All of those could create potential capacity bottlenecks uh, if, if that high demand for labor, especially technical labor, isn't met. So as a result, I think we're gonna have fairly tight labor markets going forward, but strong and unmet labor demand in some specific sectors, health and elder care as the baby boomers retire, advanced manufacturing, uh, infrastructure, construction, uh, engineering, and, and some other technical areas as well. Next slide, please. So, okay, so that was the short run picture, the long run picture. What does all that imply about immigrants and the role that immigrants can play in the US labor market? So I would say, you know, I have two arguments for the general role that higher immigration could play, and then two about specific places we need those immigrants. First of all, given the slowdown in labor force growth, that's going to really diminish economic growth in America. Uh, and you want to have economic growth. And to have economic growth, you need labor force growth if you want to avoid economic stagnation. So we need more immigrants just to bolster general labor force growth and population growth, which you need for a growing economy. Secondly, of course, we need immigrants to help deal with the fiscal crises we have in America. How are we going to pay for the retirement programs for the baby boomers, the Social Security uh, and Medicaid payments we're going to need? And immigrants can help with that. So we have two general needs for immigrants to play. But then there are these specific sectors. Immigrants can play a rising role in all of the jobs that require higher education, because as Jana pointed out, more of these immigrants now have higher education, and especially in those technical skill sectors. But again, not just computers and IT, the technical jobs in healthcare and manufacturing and, and in other sectors of the economy. But finally, this is an important point. It's not just about highly educated jobs and, and, and high tech workers. 
we also have a growing need for less educated immigrants in the care sectors. And here I want to cite the work of Kristen Butcher and Tara Watson, really important work that shows in those regions in the United States where you have more immigrants, especially less educated immigrants, you have less institutionalization of the elderly in those sectors because you're able to provide more care at home. And that's very, very important if we want to keep down costs uh, in those care sectors. So immigrants have a general role to play, and then they have some very important specific roles to play, both at highly educated and less educated kinds of jobs. Next slide, please. Well, there's a curveball that's going to come in the form of automation uh, and robotics and artificial intelligence. There's an enormous amount of conversation about artificial intelligence right now. All else equal, what we tend to see is that automation proceeds more rapidly where immigrants are fewer in number, right? Because where you don't have as many immigrants, there's more pressure to restrict labor demand to meet that lower supply. So there might be some kind of trade-off like that. But when you're talking about artificial intelligence, the potential for task replacement among workers uh, is much higher and includes the tasks performed by people like us. Uh, exactly who will be displaced as opposed to who will retrain and pivot to pick up new tasks, new tasks and then we don't know about the timing, the nature of the implementation, all of this is very uncertain, but immigrants will likely be impacted by that in the care sector and the technical work sectors. We just don't know how in the short term. So let's just, you know, let, let's just keep this in the back of our minds. This is something that will likely have impact on these labor markets in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years in ways that we're still not sure of. But it's, it's, it's sort of a footnote to everything I said before. Next slide. So bottom line uh, about the policy uh, regarding immigration, we need more immigrants. You know, we need immigrants in general because of, of, of the tightness of the labor market, declining labor force growth, uh, et cetera. And then we need immigrants both with particular technical skills, but also immigrants in the care sector to, to a lesser extent in the hospitality sector as well. So we have broad need for immigrants, but specific sector needs both at the high end of the skill spectrum and at the lower end. Of course, for the immigrants who come, we need better integration uh, into the labor market, better upgrading for those who enter. Um, I, I embrace uh, the point of view that Jana mentioned at MPI, that immigration should be more driven by the specific areas of need in our labor market. And I like a lot of their ideas about bridge visas and, and, and things like that. Uh, but this is, I think, broadly what the labor market's gonna look like and the particular roles that immigrants can play. Thank you. Great, what a perfect way to, to end and jump into the Q&A, Harry, thank you so much. So we've got a couple questions. If anyone else has questions, kind of feel free to drop them. Um, I'm gonna integrate some of the questions that were posted there into a broader question to start us off. Um, so some of the data that both kind of um, Alicia and Courtney and Jonna showed, uh, you know, obviously there was this big drop in immigration during the pan during the pandemic. If you look at some data, it looks like the drop preceded the pandemic. So I guess part of my question is to you know to what degree was the decline pandemic related, and to what degree was it, you know, policy pre-pandemic related? And then relatedly, perhaps for anyone who wants to answer, the pandemic was this massive natural experiment um, in immigration and labor supply. What have we learned, um, you know, about the role of immigrants in the labor market? Um, from, from that natural experiment. I don't know who wants to kick things off. Yeah, Harry. Well, I'll, I'll address the second question because I think the yeah. other speakers know more about the first one. Um, you know, what we learned is that when you, when in the short run, you dramatically curtail the supply of immigrants, it's going to add to worker shortages uh, and very tight labor markets. Uh, and Sometimes those, you know, sometimes those worker shortages can be good for workers, like right? it can drive up their rates of compensation, but it can also lead to inflation. It can create capacity bottlenecks that impede production in the United States. So for those on the policy arena who argue for dramatic and fast curtailments of immigration, um, most of these data suggest that's not that's not a very good thing for the labor market and the economy. Cool. Um, I don't know, maybe Jonna, did. Do you feel like you, you could answer kind of to what degree was the drop really pandemic related? You know, to what degree did we begin to see it before the pandemic? Uh, yeah, uh, so it really depends on the population that we are talking about. 
Like for instance, um, um, the, the, during the Trump administration, they generally aimed to to curtail uh, immigration, not only say in the family or ref, refugee uh, stream, but also uh, really ac across the board. Uh, it affected the uh, uh, the, no the number of students uh, coming in. If we if we look at the um, the number of new international students coming in, uh, that number started declining. Um, as a result of uh, a policy, even before the, the, the pandemic threw its own curveball, uh, the same is with some some groups uh, on H-1B visas. For instance, Indian and Chinese nationals uh, had harder time to to get their visas approved. Uh, the lines to get uh, the uh, um, to schedule application were longer. So that Again, cumulatively, cumulatively led to to the uh, uh, not as ro robust increase, or in some cases, decline of the uh, number number of people uh, coming. Um, well, I guess le less so on the agric uh, the those who are coming through the agriculture worker uh, program. Uh, those who are traditionally there is a bipartisan support to ensure that we have access to. Um, agricultural workers, uh, but yeah, so it's, it depended a lot on on the uh, uh, type of visa uh, uh, in, in, in intersection of the visa and nationality, and some groups were affected more than than, than others uh, as a result of policy. But nonetheless, nonetheless, if we look at them, step back, uh, the the uh, because a number of policies that uh, that were aimed to reduce the flow were immediately challenged. Um, that did not produce as big of an impact that it could have. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful answer. I think kind of as many of us know for a lot of these tricky economic and policy questions, the answer is often it depends. Um, this um, maybe this question is for, for for Courtney. You know, I think I was struck by Jana's statistic that. 80% of um, uh, kind of the skilled worker visas are driven by the information technology sector. We are kind of moving into the open lottery season for H-1Bs. To what degree has layoff news or kind of slowing hiring in the tech industry, um, you know, been at all visible in the data? Or do you kind of, do you have any expectations around what might happen with, you know, a slowing web market and what that might, might mean for skilled worker uh, visa demand? Sure, sure. So most of the slides that I showed focused specifically on supply. So um, so I didn't have demand on those slides as well. But our analysis, um, you know, we do earnings call scraping to to inform some of our employment um, forecasting. And so, I mean, the, the tech sector layoffs, some of them are real. Some of them are just now coming to to fruition. So people that were laid off, say, in Q4, May have actually remained on payrolls through Q1, and so you know the timing of some of those layoffs is really interesting. But you know, there's also a lot of um, firms that are saying they're being opportunistic and really strategic about capturing workers. So you know, firms that were struggling to find IT workers because they were all going to the tech sector, you know, are now having a greater availability of workers. So. Um, you know, the jobs reports continue to be really hot. So, you know, firms are still hiring. And I think that hope, uh, hopefully we'll find out more, um, you know, over the next month or two in terms of, like you said, some of those seasonal flows for H-1B visas. But clearly there are still some unmet demand for workers. John, uh, anyone else want to weigh in on kind of layoffs, tech demand? Um, I have other questions, if not. I guess I'll just add that the tech layoffs have started, more will come, uh, but that will be a fairly short-term phenomenon. And remember, as, as, these, as these new pieces of legislation kick in, the TIPS bill, the, the infrastructure bill, that new demand might easily outweigh whatever tech layoffs we're going to see that might be recession-induced. Uh, so I, I think, for the most part, demand is going to remain strong. 
very kind of good point. Remind us about the short term versus the long term. I, I guess there's a question here, perhaps for Harry, about the longer term um, implications of remote work um, for labor demand. Do, do you think that's going to have much of an effect um, at all? Do, I think um, I forget who was mentioned the, the student flows and how remote study might affect student flows. Do you mean in terms of international students or? Yeah, I guess it's, I apologize. I forget who made the comment about you know more students doing um, uh, remote study courses instead of coming physically to be present in the United States. And there's a question from one of the, the audience uh, members about um, you know remote work perhaps shifting kind of uh, the need for for workers as well. I, I I guess the question is for immigration. What would be relevant is how much of that remote work can actually be done overseas. Uh, which might substitute for the flow of immigrants here. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a guess that much of the remote work we need in these sectors will not be able to be done from overseas, and that at the end of the day, we will this, the demand for people uh, in the country will still be quite high. But I, I'd also defer to other our other panelists if they have thoughts on this. Or I think I think a lot of the like J1s, for example, they work in leisure and hospitality as well as childcare. Elder care was also mentioned. And so those are high touch fields, right? And so um, they require you to be in person to perform a number of the tasks. And so some of those may be enhanced, um, you know, by tech. And again, you know, Harry talked some about task replacement, um, but not all tasks can be replaced by, you know, people, by things that aren't human, so. Yeah, great, great points. Now, we've got a couple of minutes left. I'm gonna ask one last question before kind of turning it back over to, to Caitlin. Um, Jana, you know, I, I you kind of, you touched on the point of skill and skill use. You know, you've done so much great research about, um, you know, whether or not people arriving with the skills can use their skills. Maybe could you give us a, um, a quick overview of things we should keep in mind about, about skills? Uh, well, thank you for, uh, giving me the opportunity to plug in the research that I'm very passionate about. Um, <clears throat> to me, a, a very, very important statistic is that the, the change in educational profile of uh, the incoming immigrants. And so the statistic I gave of 47% uh, is based on 2021 data, so before the the large number of uh, people coming in right now. However, if you look at the of global education trends, we see that uh, the number of people with higher levels of education is rising across the board. If you look at the, uh, uh, if you compare all immigrants and, and recent immigrants, the recent, uh, recently arrived immigrants across almost all countries are more likely to be higher educated, and we're talking about BA plus, than uh, the general population. So. Uh, we definitely have to think about uh, that the the US, the U.S. immigrant population is uh, getting more educated, uh, which has implications on their ability to convert their degrees and credentials and licenses and professional experience in the U.S. labor market. And here we are facing a big challenge because uh, the longstanding licensing barriers, employment, uh, employer hesitancy to, to hire immigrants, uh, lack of um, programs that would essentially bridge what immigrants have already with what's needed, you know, one, those one or two courses that they need in order to complete uh, uh, the requirements for, for the license, uh, uh, lack of uh, opportunities to improve uh, professional English and communication. So all these challenges have been long-standing uh, in the United States as well as other countries. Uh, and while there is the, there are some good, uh, good really pioneering examples across the country to address these challenges, uh, I think we're still behind in terms of the thinking and investment into um, addressing uh, what we call brain waste or skill underemployment. We estimated that about two million college-educated immigrants are underemployed, uh, meaning they either work in low-skill jobs, jobs that require no more than a high school degree, or they're unemployed. 
uh, and if you include also people who work in you know with bachelor degree, bachelor and higher degrees who work in middle skill jobs, that population doubles. So we're talking about significant number of people who could be contributing um, to to the to the uh, um, skills demand. Uh, uh, To, to uh, take take jobs that are that will become available, but they might not be because of the long-standing barriers. Great, thank you so much. And I know we're a couple of minutes over, so so again, echo my thanks to all the panelists for a really fantastic conversation. Really appreciate your time um, and expertise in, in sharing that with us. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Neeb. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual NEEB Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit nave.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.